Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 328. Today's big Bible questions are, how can we be joyful in trials, and how can we produce the fruit of repentance? Well, happy Thursday to you, dear friends. Our readings for today include 1 Chronicles 13 and 14, Amos 8, Luke 3, and James chapter 1. Now, our focus questions are going to be split across two chapters, which I know is not the normal way of doing things around here, so I hope the big boss man doesn't find out. Let's talk about producing the fruit of repentance first, because that's probably the more simple of our two questions. First of all, as you might know, fruit of repentance is a metaphor, and yet another farming and gardening kind of metaphor, which would have really been appropriate for the first century, since so much of their lives revolved around growing food for sustenance. It's actually very appropriate for my home city of Salinas, California as well. If you've never been there, I gotta tell you, it's a very interesting city, kind of unexpected. The city itself is incredibly densely populated. If you look at it on Google Maps, it's one big gray circle uh, with very few big yards, very few in the way, little woods in the middle of the city. And it's, there's trees here, it's pretty, but the city itself is dense, 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 compa- at least compared to my former home in Alabama. That densely populated part of the city is basically surrounded on nearly every side by like giant farm fields. So the farming metaphors really work well in modern day Salinas too, because it's a, it's a farm city, it's an ag city. So John, the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah, has grown up to become a prophet, an Old Testament kind of prophet, interestingly enough. And we know this because of the phrase Luke uses to introduce him in Luke 2.2, which says, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. God's word came to whoever is the formula so often used in the Old Testament to identify that moment in which that person becomes a prophet, and John is indeed a prophet, pointing people towards Jesus and preparing the way for his ministry. John is also a wild man, a bold man, and his message is all about repentance, and he proclaims a baptism for repentance, thus earning his moniker of John the Baptist. Now, let's read all about John and Jesus' baptism in Luke 3 thinking about how we produce the fruit of repentance. Luke chapter 3, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. His brother Philip, tetrarch of the reason of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight, rough ways smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. He then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce 
fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, what then should we do? The crowds were asking him. And he replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with the one who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He told them, Don't collect any more than you have been authorized. Some soldiers also questioned him, What should we do? And he said to them, Don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. Now the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then, along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else. He locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and he was as he was praying, heaven was opened, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. As he began his ministry, Jesus was about thirty years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Matat, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Janai, son of Joseph, son of Mattathias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, son of Esli, son of Nagai, son of Maath, son of Mattathias, son of Simeon, son of Josek, son of Jodah, son of Joanan, son of Resa, son of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, son of Neri, son of Melchi, son of Adai, son of Chazam, son of, son of Elmadam, son of Ur, son of Joshua, son of Eliezer, son of Joram, son of Matat, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, son of Jonam, son of Eliakim, son of Melia, son of Mena, son of Matatha, Son of Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, son of Salmon, son of Nashon, son of Amminadab, son of Ram, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Serug, son of Ru, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Canaan, son of Arphaxad, son of Shem, Son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalalel, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. So, how does one produce the fruit of repentance? And to simplify and refine and put a fine point on the question even more, we're basically asking, what does repentance look like? Well, here's John with the answer. He says, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And the people start saying, well, what do we do? And the crowds were asking him that. And he said, well, if you got two shirts, share with somebody who has one, has none. If you have food, share with somebody who has none. 
tax collectors asked him, what do we do? And he said, don't collect more than you're authorized. In other words, be honest in your job. Soldiers asked him the same thing. And he said, don't take any money from people by force and be satisfied with the money you're making. So this is a really important teaching of John, and it's actually very practical too, and obviously a spiritual practical way. It shows us what repentance and following Jesus should look like. It's not merely a walking of the aisles and a raising of the hands, but repentance looks like turning away from one you know, bad thing and turning towards a good thing. Repentance is an active state, and it's an action itself. Repentance is absolutely crucial and essential to gospel. I note when Peter preached the very first sermon at Pentecost, which is recorded in Acts chapter 2, the people responded to his message and said, what what do we do? Here's Peter's answer. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's Acts 2.38. Repenting was central to the message of Jesus also. Luke 13.3, Jesus says, Unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Matthew 4.17, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So is repentance an action or a work that brings salvation? No, it's not. We are saved by grace through faith and not by works, but it is a fruit of salvation, In other words, an action that is born out of people who are saved in the same way that apples are born out of living apple trees. We aren't saved by repenting or by producing the fruit of repentance, but if there is no fruit or action of repentance in somebody's life, then they can be sure they are not saved by Jesus. As Jesus tells us himself in in Matthew 7, 17 through 20, in the same way, Every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. So what is the fruit of repentance? It's actions that come out of a life that has been transformed and saved by Jesus. And these are practical actions like sharing your clothes, sharing your food, not cheating in your job, not bullying people, that sort of thing. Well, next question. How in the world can we rejoice in trials? And I'm going to admit this is a really, really hard one. Rejoicing in hardship not only doesn't come natural to me or, I I don't know, 99.999% of humans, the exact opposite comes natural. We want to mourn and whine and writhe in pain and complain in trials, but James has the temerity to point us towards rejoicing in the midst of trials. How? What? What are you talking about, James? Well, let's read the entire passage and see what he's talking about. James chapter 1, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Christ Jesus, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. 
That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes." In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And, you know, I'll say this before we jump back into our discussion. Tonight, for our family Bible time, uh, we read James chapter 1. I've gotten to where I'm reading the next day's passage to the family that night. It gives me a chance to hear it before I record the podcast and think about what do we want to talk about in this this, uh, passage of Scripture. And my son did an interesting thing. At the end of James 1, when I got finished reading it, He said, I said, well, has anybody got any questions or or comments or whatever? And he said, how do we help orphans? And and I said, well, how do you think we should help orphans? And so I gave him an assignment to consider how we as a family could help orphans. Of course, we give to causes that helps orphans. But at the moment, I don't know that we personally know any orphans. But as, as as we discussed it, I said, that's not really an excuse you know, just because you don't personally see an orphan one day doesn't excuse you from obeying the word of God there. So I appreciate that my son reading this passage is immediately struck by the question of how do we obey it? And I should say that that's the way we should all read the word of God. We need to be able to hear God say, well, pure and undefiled religion before me is look after orphans and widows in their distress. And we need to be able to say, okay, I've got to go find some orphans and widows to look out for and take care of. And our church needs to be about the business of doing that. So so that's important. It's important for us not just to be hearers of the word, 
it, but to be doers of the word, I think, as James would say. So back to being joyful in trials. James, you're telling us that we have to be greatly joyful in the midst of really, really hard situations. Well, not exactly. And there's a very important distinction here. Let's be straight. Some trials are so hard, the only way to rejoice in them is just just put on a fake smile and pretend. And that is not what is being asked of us here. If it were, then it would have been proper for Peter, if he wasn't asleep, to walk up to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was in such agony that he was sweating drops of blood. And Peter could have said to him, hey, Jesus, you shouldn't be sweating blood right now. You should be greatly joyous. So cheer up. Hopefully, you recognize just exactly how absurd that is. And it's also absurd to try to get a Christian brother or sister to smile and be happy and joyful when they are going through devastation. James is not telling us to smile and laugh and be happy through all of our trials. He's telling us, rather, to count them a great joy or consider them a great joy. Now, that's a very fine but important distinction. The Greek word there is hegeomai, and it's an interesting word. We get our word hegemony from it. Hegeomai means to lead or to govern or to guide. And the tense of this particular verb, I don't want to bore you with too much grammar, but this is kind of important. The the hegeomai here is in the aorist middle tense, which means that the action is to be done on oneself. In other words, James is saying something like, Lead yourself to consider it great joy when going through trials. And then he tells us why. Because we should remember that these trials we are going through will produce in us endurance, which brings maturity. Have you ever like worked out, lifted weights, trained very hard to become strong at something or great at soccer, baseball, etc.? Any kind of craft, a sport or or, or a, a profession. There's a great satisfaction that comes at the end of a strong workout or a strong session of improvement or practice or whatever. You might be hurting. You might be out of breath. You might be smelly, broken, stinky. But you know that the end result will be greater endurance in your physical body. Spiritual Trials are exactly like this, says James, in the same way that your body will be soft and weak and slow if you never push it to exercise or run. uh, Your spiritual life and my spiritual life will be soft and slow and weak and immature if we never go through trials and learn how to turn to God in the midst of horrifying things. So God will not have his people in that place of weak immaturity. Therefore, he will take his people through trials in a Romans 8, 28 sort of way, all things working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And thus, in the midst of trials, we don't make ourselves put on a happy face and smile but we lead our hearts to consider these trials as a source of joy, knowing that even though they hurt, even though they're hard, and I'm not minimizing that, even as terrible as they are, in the long run, they will have a good impact on us. They will produce 
fruit, the fruit of endurance. Now, again, this doesn't mean put on a happy face and pretend to smile. It means to lead your heart to a place of reckoning and realization and considering that God is ultimately doing a good thing through the very hard and bad trial you're going through. And thus, it could be said we are governing ourselves to a place of the understanding of the joy that's going to come out of it. Well, I hope that makes sense. I really wrestled with how to communicate that properly. And and the thing I really want to emphasize is I don't think James is telling us to put a brave face on or to be an actor or to be um, insincere, but it's a reckoning, accounting, a governing of our soul to know that whatever bad we're going through, that God is doing a good work of endurance through it. Well, let's continue. First Chronicles chapter 13, verse 1 David consulted with all his leaders, the commanders of hundreds and of thousands. Then he said to the whole assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if this is from the Lord our God, let's spread out and send the message to the rest of our relatives in all the districts of Israel, including the priests and Levites in their cities and pasture lands, that they should come together with us. Then let's bring back the ark of our God, for we did not inquire of him in Saul's days. Since the proposal seemed right to all the people, the whole assembly agreed to do it. So David assembled all of Israel from the Shihor of Egypt to the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. David and all Israel went to Belah, that is Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to take from there the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord who is enthroned between the cherubim. At Abinadab's house, they set the ark of God on a new cart. Uzzah and Alo were guiding the cart. David and all of Israel were dancing with all their might before God with songs and with lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. When they came to Kaidan's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to hold the ark because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and he struck him dead because he had reached out to the ark. So he died there in the presence of God. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. So he named that place Perez Uzzah or outbreak against Uzzah as it is still named today. David feared God that day and said, How can I ever bring the ark of God to me? So David did not bring the ark of God home to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of God remained with Obed-Edom's family in his house for three months, and the Lord blessed his family and all that he had. Chapter 14, verse 1. King Hiram of Tyre sent envoys to David along with cedar logs, stone masons, and carpenters to build a palace for him. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that his kingdom had been exalted for the sake of his people Israel. David took more wives in Jerusalem and he became the father of more sons and daughters. These are the names of the children born to him in Jerusalem, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, El Pelet, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Beliada, and Eliphelet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all of Israel, they went in search of David. When David heard of this, he went out to face them. Now the Philistines had come and raided in Rephaim Valley, so David inquired of God, Should I attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord replied, Attack, and I will hand them over to you. So the Israelites went up to Baal Perazim. And David defeated the Philistines there. Then David said, Like a bursting flood, God has used me to burst out against my enemies. Therefore they named that place the Lord Bursts Out. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David ordered that they be burned in the fire. 
Once again, the Philistines raided in the valley, so David again inquired of God, and God answered him, Do not pursue them directly. Circle around them and attack them opposite the balsam trees. When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then go out to battle, for God will have gone out ahead of you to strike down the army of the Philistines. So David did as God commanded him, and they struck down the Philistine army from Gibeon to Gezer. Then David's fame spread throughout all the lands, and the Lord caused the nations to be terrified of him. Amos chapter 8, verse 1. The Lord God showed me this, a basket of summer fruit, and he asked me, What do you see, Amos? I replied, A basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, The end has come for my people Israel. I will no longer spare them. In that day the temple songs will become wailing. This is the Lord God's declaration. Many dead bodies thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and do away with the poor of the land, asking, When will the new moon be over so we may sell grain and the Sabbath so we may market wheat? We can reduce the measure while increasing the price and cheat with dishonest scales. We can buy the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and even sell the chaff. The Lord is sworn by the pride of Jacob. I will never forget all their deeds. Because of this, won't the land quake and all who dwell in it mourn? All of it will rise like the Nile. It will surge and then subside like the Nile in Egypt. And in that day, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the land in the daytime. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will cause everyone to wear sackcloth and every head to be shaved. I will make that grief like mourning for an only son and its outcome like a bitter day. Look, the days are coming. This is the declaration of the Lord God. When I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and roam from north to east, seeking the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the beautiful young women, the young men also, will faint from thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, Dan, or as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again. Lord, have mercy. Well, friends, may the Lord strengthen you. May his hand guide you. May his face be towards you. May he bless you and keep you. Good day to you and Godspeed.